So you're asking about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's book on the, on the prison of life. Um, first off, we have to understand that when he's talking about the prison of life, he's not saying that life itself is a prison. That's the first thing that we need to discuss because he's actually referencing the first noble truth here. And that um, when we say that uh, the dukkha exists, many, many people in the West will translate that as to life is suffering. But that's not the case. Um, life is um, uh, its own thing and suffering is optional. So that's the important thing to begin with is that it's not life itself that's a prison, but that we make a prison out of it. Um, the, uh, the concept of the prison actually goes right back to the Buddha. It's one of his analogies. And the analogy that the Buddha gives is the analogy about um, what we call mental hindrances. And these mental hindrances are actually uh, also referred to as unwholesome thoughts. We normally have two kinds of thoughts, thoughts that are wholesome and thoughts that are unwholesome. And when we have unwholesome thoughts, that causes um, dukkha. But in fact, unwholesomeness is the same thing would be as unsatisfactory. And then wholesome thoughts would be satisfying or satisfactory. So unwholesome thoughts are the kind of thoughts that give us work to do. And the uh, wholesome thoughts would be the kind of thoughts that we have after the work is done and we can relax. Except that in the Western world, we seem to go from job to job to job, from one thing after another to do after another to do, just as if there were prison guards ordering us around on a regular basis. And so these hindrances unwholesome thoughts is like being trapped um, in in that realm because almost everyone uh, would consider uh, a prison as an unwholesome place and we get stuck into uh, the habits of unwholesome thoughts so if we were to get out of an actual prison that would be quite a relief to have some freedom. But in fact, there are five analogies and the prison is just one of them. Uh, another analogy is the analogy of being sick and in the hospital and then getting well. And now you want out of the hospital. You feel good and you're ready to go. Okay. Another analogy is, is that you have been in debt that you owe money, you've got a mortgage, a car payment, something like that, and then you finally pay it off. And so you don't owe anybody anything anymore. In fact, they even talk about uh, prison as paying your debt to society. And so we're talking about, again, there are many different ways of this analogy of the distinction between 
being trapped and being free. But we're not talking about being trapped versus being free uh, physically. We're talking about being trapped mentally versus being trapped um, in the reality. Another analogy uh, is that we've been on a journey carrying a lot of luggage with us. And then finally we get home. And when we get home, we can relax and sit things down, not even unpack our bags. We just sit down and relax because we finally gotten it gotten home. Okay, so another analogy would be basically the analogy that everybody is living through nowadays, and that is that we've got to work for a living. In the suttas, it's about a, a, a servant to the king who has to get up before the king do all of the work to get ready for the king to get up, get his clothes ready and whatnot, and then follow the king around all day. And then at the last thing at night, we put the king to bed, and now the servant can go to bed. Right? So uh, basically what that means is, is that we become a slave or a servant to all of our duties. In each one of these cases, there's something behind it in the sense of the money we owe that to somebody or to something. The prison sentence is, is we're uh, paying a debt to society that has been given to us somewhere along the way. But the reality is, is that these things are actually given to ourselves by ourselves, that this is work that we make ourselves do. We put ourselves into prison, and we hold our our own key to that prison. And so that we can get out of the prison of life, we can, we can get a pardon, we can get out. Now, normally what this is, if I can go away from the suttas and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa into modern psychology for just a bit, we can talk about how... Uh, Actually, Freud was the one who figured this out. And then one of his students, Eric Byrne, put it in language that was understandable. And so Freud used the word ego, superego, and id. And uh, Eric Byrne changed the language from parent, adult, and child. In the sense that the more primitive part of the human brain that which feels and communicates through feelings and uh, that sort of thing is referred to as the child ego state. And then the frontal cortex, which is the human part of the brain, is normally referred to as um, the adult, the one who can figure things out, leaving us what in Freud's term is the superego, and uh, Eric Byrne calls the parent. Actually, we can, in this respect, call that the prison guard, or the or the warden, or the judge. Can you hear me? I can. Sorry, my headphones just died. Um, okay. In the middle of your wonderful lecture, but please, please continue. Yeah. Okay. These ones are working. So, so there's a, there is a part of the mind that we grew up developing in childhood. 
And how that was developed was when the child that each one of us was is listening to and paying attention to the adults around the moms and dads and uncles and teachers and preachers and uh, rabbis and all of those kind of people are uh, part of the parent ego state. And basically what is stored is a set of how things should be done, rules, rites, rules, rituals, and, and the human being picks these things up as, as a child instinctually we instinctually start doing what we're told to do, whether we want to do it or not. That instinct that we have is actually called the nesting instinct, or also called the herding instinct. It's a natural instinct that uh, animals have, like sheep will herd together when the dog is barking, but the reality is the dog is just barking. But the instinct is to herd together to protect against wolves biting. Okay, and so this is how human beings are actually in a prison. We're in a herd and we go around responding to barking politicians and other things like that. Because when we were really little kids, these uh, the barking also had a bite to it. Okay, we were punished when we were kids if we didn't do what we were told to do. So now we've gotten into the habit of being of being told what to do and doing it, along with remembering all the rules that we were told and all the retributions that have with that. And all of that comes out of the parent ego state that I would call uh, critical thinking, that we are in fact in the West taught how to do critical thinking. We built our society on critical thinking, thinking that this house is small, that house is big, this is better, this is good, this is bad. It's a whole set of judgments that we build up. That in fact, this is uh, the story of Adam and Eve. It's a very interesting way that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa looks at the story of Adam and Eve in the sense that most of the people in the religions, I know most about it from Christianity, and the Christians really love the story. They love talking snakes and apples and fig leaves and uh, uh, divine retribution and all of that kind of stuff. And when they do that, they kind of miss the story. The real story, or actually not the story, but the moral of the story is, is that uh, if you look at what, what they mean, the word is they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. What that means is, is that we eat the fruit of means that we have to put up with our knowledge of good and evil. So when we go around saying this is good, this is bad, when we go around judging things, then... Uh, because of that knowledge in, of good and evil that we have done, we have to put up with the results of those judgments that we make. Now we can see that uh, uh, that judgments uh, that we're making is actually the critical thinking, but 
it's important to introduce that there's another kind of thinking that we can do, and that new kind of thinking is what we would call nurturing, nurturing kind of thinking. And we can equate the, uh, the story of Adam and Eve is, is that they were nurturing, and because they were nurturing, they were in a paradise. Everything was okay, everything was taken care of, no problems. But as soon as they started to judge the paradises, this part of paradise is good and this part of paradise is, is bad, and we keep doing that, we're actually destroying paradise by trying to improve it. Why? Because almost always uh, to make a, a building improved, we start with a wrecking ball. Okay, and so now we're stuck in the prison of having to uh, do a wrecking ball job on everything because we're criticizing everything. And so uh, the prison of life is, is that we have picked up the habit of and are then doomed to uh, being caught in this destructive pattern of judgments. But in fact, the prison itself will become a paradise if we stop judging it and find it nurturing. So that's basically what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is, uh, is talking about, and that's the history of the use of the word prison and, and um, how it's used. Um, so if you guys have got any more detailed questions, I'd be happy to um, entertain them. <laughs> Great stuff. Thank you so much for that. That was very informative. Thanks. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, I my thing was kind of a little nitpicky and away from the main point of the essay, but I was wondering if you could um, fill me in a bit. So I was a little. Um, uh, there was one part, I think, okay, so it's near the beginning, freedom is salvation from prison, where uh, not so much specifically to that claim, but more to the uh, description that Buddha Dasa has, I'll just read the quote, um, you must call the words salvation and liberation that are used in all religions, or must recall the words, the final goal of all religions is salvation or emancipation, or whatever word is most suitable in each language. So I guess my issue there is that you know especially when we think of you know western you know abrahamic judaism christianity islam they often use very hierarchical language in describing the divine it doesn't to me seem as though um liberation really is the best way to describe what they're doing there i was wondering if you could speak any to that Okay, well, first off, within Christianity, they do talk about freedom from sin. Mm. Okay, that's it. Sin is a prison. I gotcha, I gotcha. So, I guess what my issue there is then, is that they're describing, I'm not saying that, you know, serving all authority is prison, but it does seem as though... Um, that is freedom from sin, but it also comes with constrictions on another end that don't seem per se like liberation, I guess is what I'm getting at. In terms of the restrictions against sin, let's say. Okay, I think I understand what you're talking about. Let's use it in the sense of the describing of the word freedom in the sense of freedom to versus freedom from. Mm. 
Okay, because the teenager is the one who wants freedom to go out. All right. And you can also go so far as to say then the freedom to sin. Mm. Okay. As opposed to uh, freedom from sin. So if you have freedom from sin, that means that you are completely free and that you have no worries, no problems, and everything is okay. Out of prison. If you have the freedom to sin, then that is your freedom and your choice to walk right into prison. And once you're in prison, once you're in that sin, it's got its own grip on you. Sure. I, I, I think one thing, you know, Spencer is saying as well as is to be free you know, in this, to have this true liberation in a sense, right? One might have to, um, it seems as though one might be foregoing things, right? You know, like, for example, on the five precepts, they say, like, you know, thou shalt not be intoxicated. Well, not thou shalt not, but it says do not take intoxicants, right? Um, so that seems like you're not free to do that. But in fact, that's helping you out to not do that except that you were always free to get drunk but once you're drunk you're not free sure you're free to get drunk but if you get drunk in that moment of drunk you're not free you're trapped okay so that's like the bear is free to stick his foot in the bear trap but once he sticks his foot in the bear trap he's not free now sure which okay, is not so such a great deal. Can, pardon? In fact, the bear trap is the prison now. The sin is the prison. So when you say that you want to have freedom to do things, or when you're saying that, in fact, uh, this is a very, very beautiful point that you're making. And that is, is that almost all humans, because we were children, we see... Uh, the precepts, the rites, rules, rituals, the, what, 612 in the Talmud, the Ten Commandments, the, um, the IRS, federal laws, the whole nine yards of authority. We don't like it when we're kids. We do not like to be told what to do. Okay? Nobody likes what to do, but we do it anyway. We, are, we do what we're told to do. So now you're bringing that forward that you're looking at the precepts of I should have the freedom to break the precepts if I'm going to be free. Right. But in fact, the precepts, if you think of the Buddhist precepts, the the Buddhist precepts are, are, let us call it nothing better than good ideas. That's all they are. Nothing more than good ideas. And when you see that those are good ideas, then they're no longer rules or precepts. They're merely good ideas. And that you can see that there is some freedom in that. For instance, if you kill someone, you're not going to be free. You're not going to be free in your own mind. You're not going to be free because you think that they're, um, they're after you. 
Um, in fact, the one that comes to mind is Dostoevsky's novel Crime and Punishment, where the guy yeah. was an axe murderer, right? And he got caught. But the whole time that he wasn't caught by the cops, he still was not free. Yep, yep. I think yep. he turned himself in out of just after torturing mm-hmm. himself for 500 pages, you know. Exactly. Just, 500 yeah. pages of, 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 of <laughs> mental punishment. <laughs> Indeed. So, and so basically what we can say this way, we can turn that upside down and look at it from a noble perspective or actually set it right because it was upside down. You were looking at it from the bottom up. Let's look at it from the top down. <clears throat> and that is, is that when one practices Anapanasati correctly, and is able to remove the unwholesome thoughts from his mind, in that moment there is a kind of freedom. For instance, you're thinking about, I've got to write this email. Let us say for some reason that you're involved with lawyers, and lawyers write you emails, and they come in, and you don't want to answer them. Oh, what a big mess that lawsuit is. I, and every time I think about it, I feel bad, okay? And so instead of answering that email that I don't want to answer, I sit down and I do Anapanasati. And while I'm doing Anapanasati, I'm telling myself things like, I don't have to do that email. I'm okay right now. Let me take a deep breath and just enjoy the moment. And I find that I can become free from the thoughts of that email and I can be in a pleasant, beautiful state. Once I get myself into a pleasant, beautiful state, Now I can do the email from a pleasant, beautiful state, but before, because of the way that we were trained, I would go do that email and hate doing it. Sure. So now I can go do it pleasantly because I've gotten the dukkha out of my mind. Now, let's continue on with that to the point that let's say that there is a state where you can be completely free from wanting anything. So you don't want anything at all. You're completely free. The Buddha talks about dukkha as actually one of the definitions of dukkha is wanting things you don't have and having to put up with things you don't want to put up with. These are the two causes of suffering, but the real thing is is ignorance, that we are ignorant about the fact that we want something that we don't have. What happens instead with that ignorance is is that we think that if I want something that I don't have, if I go and get it, then I will feel better because I don't feel good because I want it. I feel incomplete. But if I can get myself mentally into a state where I don't want anything, now I'm completely satisfied. I'm completely free. I don't want anything at all. There is nothing to grab me. There is no interest in that bear trap for me to go stick my foot in it. Whatever was in that bear trap, I don't need it. I don't want it. I can stay away from it, and I'm quite happy. This is what we mean by then a noble mind. When the mind is noble and free from any desires at all, then our sila, or our morality, 
is going to be top-notch, high quality, not designed around a set of rules or laws. It's designed around the fact that if I don't want anything, I'm not out there getting it. If I don't want anything, I'm not going to harm anybody to get it. If I don't want anything, I'm not going to steal it. If I don't want anything, I'm not going to try to get some girl to give it to me. And don't and, and if I uh, uh, don't want anything, I'm not going to tell any lies to try to get it. Okay, so now we're understanding that if it's the state of mind that we can get in to where we don't want anything, and now our morality becomes top-notch, top quality. But we didn't get that by following a set of rules. Mm-hmm. We got that way by cleaning out the mind and getting the mind free from wanting things. So now we've got it in the sense of uh, freedom from versus freedom to. So when we say freedom to, that means I've, re- I've got the freedom to follow my desires, to follow my heart. And the freedom from is the freedom to not have to follow my heart because my heart is okay. I don't have to go follow and chase around to try to get something to make me whole because I'm already whole. So in a way, the prison of life is that we are lacking something. We miss something. We don't have what we need. And that the real practice, the spiritual practice, is to recognize you've already got all you need. You've got everything. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's fine. No worries tonight. All is okay. Take a deep breath and relax. No place to go and nothing to do and everything is okay. You see how nurturing and wholesome those kind of thoughts are. And so those are the kind of thoughts that would be wholesome because they are freedom itself. Everything's all right. If everything's all right and everything's fine and there's no worries and no work to do and no place to go and nothing to do, then I'm free. But as soon as you give me a job to do, now I've got a job to do and I'm no longer free. (coughs) Sure. So does that help you understand? Go ahead. Yeah, sure. So it's interesting, you know, Spencer and I read this book about a month ago or so or two months ago called Skin in the Game. Um, And it was about how um, when people have skin in the game in situations, they tend to to act, you know, more wisely often. You know, so if you say you have like a uh, business owner, right, versus a big company, you have a small business in the community, you know, the small business might be better at kind of responding to the interests of the community than the corporation from, you know, 10,000 miles away that just put their random Walmart there and they don't care about the community. Right. So, so Spencer asked me a really interesting question because he knows I practice Buddhism and I've mentioned that you've been a great teacher of mine, you know, et cetera. Um, And he asked me an interesting question, which was that, um, you know, because I do believe in small businesses and this sort of thing is better ways to serve communities. And he said, do you believe in skin in the game, you know, as a way of organizing society, then how can you also be, you know, a Buddhist that wants to detach from everything, you know? So 
I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on this okay. and uh, whether or not I'm even misguided to believe in skin in the game. So I, I'd love to hear. Actually, your no, thoughts I would congratulate you for uh, having uh, the concept of the skin in the game. But I will also say that in much of Western Buddhism, they misunderstand. All right. And um, let me give you a little bit about that. Not only is there um, this issue uh, about, well, let me describe it this way. And that is, is that uh, in the Mahasi and the Vajrayana and the Zen, they all teach to just watch the breath. To just merely watch the breath. Have you heard that? To note the breath, to watch the breath, okay? That's like doing it with no skin in the game. To just observe. That's the same thing as the difference between doing a video game of whatever description. The video game on the PC can be uh, Sudoku. It can be a card game. It can be Mario Brothers. uh, What is it? uh, Grand Theft Auto, many kinds of war games, all kinds of games, okay? And there's two ways to play it. One way is to actually be engaged and involved. You've got the mouse, you've got the laptop uh, keyboard or the uh, controller, uh, whatever, and you're playing the game. There's another way to play the game, and that is just to look over somebody else's shoulder and let them play the game, and all you're doing is watching what they're doing. That's the same as having no skin in the game, but actually playing the game is like having skin in the game. Is this not correct? Sure. Okay. Because, in fact, you do have skin in the game. There's a skin of yours right there on that mouse. You've got skin in the game. This is actually the way that Anapanasati should be practiced, is if you've got skin in the game. Here's what we mean by that. In Western Buddhism, this idea of actually just watching the breath is actually quite weak. If you were watching someone else play a video game, anything could be a distraction for you. If you've got skin in the game, then you're paying attention to the game, and many times you want to pay more attention to the game than whatever would be distracting, even if your house you're burning down. You still want to be in that game, right? This is the way that we want to practice Anapanasati, as if we've got skin in the game. And that uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, in his book on uh, Anapanasati, a manual for serious beginners, as well as Mahasi, talks about this. And it's certainly true in the suttas. And I'll give, um, let's go with Mahasi. Because Mahasi's spot on in his own literature, but the Mahasi method that people practice in the West is not. Mahasi says, for the object of meditation, you have to seize it, to grasp it, to jump on it, to fall on it, to confront it. Okay? These are the words that, uh, um, <clears throat> that Mahasi actually uses. No one practices that way. Well, let's, act, let's look at a little bit more about how do we do that with the breath. We're actually talking about you've got to learn to control it. 
in this way. If you cannot control your breath, then you cannot control your mind. The only way you can control your breath is with by controlling it with your mind. And the only way that you can do that is by controlling the mind in order to control the breath. If you can learn to control your breath and learn to control your mind with skin in the game, you can learn to control your feelings. If you cannot learn to control your feelings because you've never had skin in the game before, then you feel whatever feelings you've had in the past. In other words, you go by habit. And that habit is, in fact, the prison. The way that you do things is a habit, and you're stuck in doing the same things over and over and over again, and it's going to take some skin in the game to get out of those habits. You're going to have to do something to change your habits. So, this is what we begin to do is we begin to change the habits of the mind by gladdening the mind or by putting wholesome thoughts in the mind that one's right effort is to change unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. Okay, from changing the thoughts of I've got to have that Ferrari. Into well, I don't need it right now. You see the difference? I've got to have it as a prison. It's also funny you say that because I actually used the example of a Ferrari in a conversation with Spencer earlier today. Yeah. So of all the things for you to say, it's funny you said that. And by the way, Spencer, Don Morato's never talked about a Ferrari before, so it's hilarious that it came up today. Yeah. It's the example. But anyway, uh, please continue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That happens a lot. It's called synchronicity. Yeah. Mm hmm. Things just happen. So anyway, uh, if we can then seize the mind, control the mind, change the thoughts of the mind from unwholesome to wholesome thoughts. And we can also then seize the breath by controlling the breath. We control the breath by taking a long, deep in breath and control the breath with a long, deep out breath. By being able to control the breath with a long, deep breath and a long, deep out breath, that means that we're paying attention to the breath and the mind is unlikely to wander away. So you can say that, uh, like on a card game that you're playing on the computer, every time you click that card to pick it up to move it over there, that's the kind of a mindfulness that we remember, I've got to move those cards. If we don't move any cards, if we don't click the mouse, we've got no skin in the game. The breath will go back to normal like that. We want to keep the body energized. We want to make sure we're getting a lot of air. We want to make sure that we're actually getting a good long out breath. I want to make sure that the emphasis is actually on the long out breath because we want to, uh, as if all of the pollution in the mind was collected as carbon dioxide in the blood and breathing that out is a very liberating thing to do. But it's almost like that we've got, we've been poisoned and what we're poisoned with is our own activities. It's almost like, uh, uh, how to say it? Living in a garage with an automobile engine running and the air gets bad. 
and we need to open the door. Open to to let some fresh air in. And as we let that fresh air in and, and have all of that old exhaust go out, now our thoughts are not going to be as polluted either. And so all of these things work together. The body and the mind work together with the feelings. And so this is the way that we practice Anapanasati so that when the mind is wholesome, it has freedom. So there is no longer a prison of life. The prison, in fact, is the prison of unwholesome thoughts that we're in the habit of having. And how that circle goes is like this. The superego says, you got to go to work this morning. And the internal child says, but I'm tired and I don't want to go to work. And then the parent inside says, yeah, but you got to go to work. And the child inside says, yeah, but I don't want to go to work. And then the parent says, if you don't go to work, this bad thing is happening. That bad thing is happening. You're going to get yelled at, blah, 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 blah. And you hear all of that uh, super ego, uh, parent ego state stuff going on. And finally, the child reluctantly will get up and do what he's told to do. And that child inside is the adult that we are nowadays, but that we're still following the same habit that we did when we were little children, except that now we're playing both parts, both our parent and the child. And so we have this internal dialogue going on, and that internal dialogue is very, very disruptive. It's critical. We're being critical of ourselves, giving ourselves work to do, when in fact we could relax instead. I thought about that is you got to go to work now. And then instead of saying, I don't feel like it, we can have a say, okay, rest for five minutes and take a really deep breath and relax and relax. And in five minutes, you can get up and go to work. And so now we're in a much better mental state, you see. It's all about getting the mind back into a good mental state. And we are often in not a good mental state. And when we're not in a good mental state, that means that we're in jail or that we're in prison or that we're, we're forced to do a job or be a servant or having a debt to pay. You got to get up and go to work because you've got debts to pay. So this, uh, that's why those five analogies all work together, sick in prison, uh, uh, having a job to do, being in debt, being on a journey, all have the quality that there is relief at the end of it. You get out of jail, you get better, you pay your debt. So we need to develop then the feeling of having arrived at the destination rather than feeling like we're on a journey of life. So you can think of the journey of life as the same as the prison of life. When are we actually going to get home and relax? So do you have any questions about that? Yeah, one thing one thing I've you know just wondering, I don't know if we could do this here, if you could recommend me a source or whatever. Uh, you know, I've always been interested in or for a long time interested in you know beginning to practice some meditation and yeah you know, i'm really i've not, not done it seriously before um 
So yeah, I'd I'd really just be interested in some basics of that. Surprisingly enough, I've already given you all the basics. Oh, I'm, I'm yeah, I've, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, okay. Yeah. Let's let's look at it from the top down. Then from the very top of the teaching of the Buddha, the Buddha says that he only teaches one thing, just one thing. And that is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. <coughs> Another way that you could say that, if we change the language a bit, we can say that the Buddha only teaches one thing, and that is prison and escape from prison. Mm. That's all he teaches. And the word Dukkha often is translated into English as the word... Um, suffering to be honest with you guys that's really so christian i mean what is really suffering you got to have some dude on a cross hanging there dying <laughs> suffering greatly and so when uh westerners hear about um, uh the teachings of the buddha as dukkha they immediately go to well how suffering is there how much of it is there how bad is it this is not the right way to look at it. In fact, the word dukkha can um, be better translated as just unsatisfactory. It just doesn't quite meet standards. It's just not up to my level. I've got a high bar here, and that don't, don't cut it. Okay, it's unsatisfying. It's not good enough. Well, we've been trained our whole lives that things are not good enough. Even when you take a test, you might have gotten an A minus. That's still not good enough. We always want more and more and more. Nothing's ever good enough. Our whole society is built upon that. This is what we mean by the critical mind. The critical thinking can always find fault with it, whatever it is. It's always not up to scratch, not good enough. And so we've gotten ourselves into the habit of that. We find dissatisfactions in everything. Even when somebody gives us a gift. You've probably heard the story, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. You know why? You probably got bad teeth, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> so... This is where we're coming from. Everything has um, a pollution or a disadvantage or a fault built into it. This is the prison of life. The fact that whatever is delivered to us is just not good enough. We feel like that we're in prison and we can't go get the good stuff. We got to put up with the garbage. Okay. But there is this thing called the Duca Naroda. Dukkha Naroda means that we can come out of that state and come into a state of satisfaction. And so um, the uh, little teaching of Dukkha and Dukkha Naroda, we can see that in many, many places. I see uh, many, many times that the entire teaching of Buddha can be wrapped up into just one little statement. The one I like is, don't worry, be happy. That's the entire teachings of the Buddha right there. Don't worry means free yourself from the hindrances, 
And then you're automatically going to be happy because you've got no worries. If you had no worries at all, you'd be happy. So you can think of, in fact, that any worries that you would have were kind of like a prison. You're almost bound because of those worries to be worried and to think about those things. And you're trapped into thinking about the things that you're uh, worried about. And we call that worry. And Bhikkhu Buddhadasa calls that a prison. But when we're not worried, now we can be happy. So this uh, Dukkha Dukkha Naroda boils, uh, breaks down or unpacks, unfolds into what is called the Four Noble Truths. We call these truths noble because they've always been true. They've been true in the time of the Buddha. They were true 100 years ago. They're true yesterday. They're true right now. And as far as we can tell, they'll be true right off into the future. In the sense that, number one, there is dukkha, or the way that we're talking about there, there is that prison. It exists. And if you're not careful, you might get into it. So, there is a cause for this dukkha. There is a cause for the prison. And what that cause is, the primary cause, they say mostly in Madri, uh, in Vajrayana and Mahayana Buddhism, they talk about it as clinging. But basically, we don't have to use that word. The word clinging, by the way, nobody uses that in modern English. We use the word want. I want something. Okay? Uh, and so, um, like I said before, the, the, first, the second noble truth, the cause of suffering... The real cause is ignorance, that we don't know that we are clinging. If we knew what we were doing, then we would stop doing it because we could see how dangerous it was. And so the whole point of the ignorant uh, is, is that that's the real cause of suffering, but it's particularly ignorant about two major things. One is the ignorance of wanting something that we don't have. And so we think Oh, I will feel better if I get what I want. Well, guess what? That's possibly not the case. You may get a new car and then be dissatisfied with it almost immediately. In fact, there's a thing called buyer's remorse. To where we, we were always dissatisfied with whatever it was, even though we thought that, oh, I feel so bad now. I need that... Um, Maserati or that Lamborghini or that Ferrari. I need that car. And then when we get it, we're not going to be dis we're not going to be satisfied with it. Those kind of cars have require a lot of maintenance, high bills, etc. So uh, they they bring their own dissatisfactions with them. And when we can see that, when we can wake up to it, oh. The reason I'm un unhappy and miserable is because I want something that I don't have. If I can get myself into a state of not wanting it, then I'll be okay. But if I have the, the system, the, the wheel of desire built up so that if I want something, I work hard to get it, I get it, I'm dissatisfied again, but I still want more. So I want more, I go get that, I'm dissatisfied with it, I still want. I want more, I go get that. You see that cycle going. And so the real issue is the wanting something ignorantly. If we can change that, 
then we can come out of this cycle or out of this prison of wanting things that we don't have and wanting them and, and wanting them ignorantly so that we think that if I get it, I'll feel better. Once we recognize that the problem is not the actual getting up out of the chair and going down to the automobile dealership and plopping down the money for the car, that's not the issue. The issue is while I'm sitting at home, I'm thinking about the car. And now that car has become a prison. Okay. I could actually decide, okay, I am going to buy the car, but I got to wait until something happens. That's going to be a month from now. The question now is, is that if I'm going to buy that car a month from now, how much misery and suffering am I going to put myself through thinking about and wanting that car for the next month without getting it? As opposed to already deciding that we're going to get it a month from now. And now I don't have any worries, nothing to do, no place to go. The car will happen. Everything's going to be good. Okay, so this is a way of beginning to re realize things is that the real problem is not that I don't get the car. The real problem is, is that I want the car. And so we begin to practice then to understand that this second noble truth, there is a third noble truth. And the third noble truth is, is that I can get myself out of wanting things that I don't have. Then I can be satisfied. This is the third noble truth, this is the state that we can get in that is a state of satisfaction. This is something that the meditation students should practice to practice, get into the third noble truth and to enjoy it, to figure it out. Well, finally, there's no problems, no worries. I've got no issues. Everything is OK right now. And the, the kick is right now. It's always in this present moment. That if we can get ourselves into a very good state in this present moment and do that again and again and again, then we get the idea that I can get myself into a pleasant state any time I remember that I want to get myself into a pleasant state. Just by dropping away all of the hindrances and all the desires, take a deep breath and just relax. And we do that over and over and over again. So basically what we're talking about is now already we're talking about the fourth noble truth that there is actually a way of getting ourselves out of this unsatisfying lifestyle that was caused by us wanting things into a state where we're completely satisfied. And the Eightfold Noble Path is what is designed to do that. And the first item on the list is right view. We have to develop the right view about things. Wanting things that we don't have is dukkha. That's one's right view. Oh, I want it, and if I get it, I'll feel better. That's wrong view. Right view is, is that, hey, I don't need that. I can be okay without it. So that's our original view. In fact, you could say that you both had right view because you called me. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> OK, so we start with right view. The next thing is, and this is the most important one, is right sati. And what sati means is means to remember. What we mean by that is wake up to wake up and remember 
to wake up and take a look. In fact, to wake up and actually uh, view or to apply one's right view. Now we do that, in fact, to of the thoughts we're having. What kind of thought am I having right now? Am I having thoughts of uh, desire? Am I having thoughts of everything is satisfying? What kind of thoughts am I having? We begin to actually inspect, evaluate, um, examine, do a Sherlock Holmes number on it. Okay, we begin to look at what's going on. We're going to develop the faculty of wisdom and wisdom faculty is developed by looking at what's happening right now, looking at how things are going. And so by by waking up and looking, we can see then what is uh, unwholesome in this moment or what is wholesome. Now, that's actually a skill to be developed. Many students in the beginning ask me, well, how do I know what's the difference between wholesome and unwholesome? The answer to that is, is that it's going to take a while for you to figure out what's wholesome and unwholesome. And so that's part of the insight is to figure out what is good for you and what is not good for you. But we cannot do that unless we remember to do it. So it's basically it goes in this order. We wake up, we investigate. When we find something that is not wholesome, then we take the right effort to change that, to pull that out of the mind and put something wholesome in the mind. Okay. Once we do that, that right effort is also to take a deep breath, to relax intentionally, to relax the mind. If we do that over and over and over again, we begin to build confidence. Confidence is a major important part of this. The Pali word is shraddha or sada, uh, and that it's almost always translated as faith. More Christian language. Right? We're not practicing faith at all. We're practicing confidence of success one success after another success after another success builds confidence no evidence of success followed by no evidence of success followed by zip and nada and no success at all and we still believe that's not faith that's stupidity And that seems to be the hallmark of most religions is stupidity because they have faith in things that don't happen. We're not developing faith. We're developing confidence. That confidence then is actually, we could say, is an attitude change. And this is the fourth item on the Eightfold Noble Path. We have right view, right sati, right effort, followed by right attitude. The attitude of we're no longer going to be a victim to our own minds and the victim to our own uh, habitual thoughts. And we're going to make a change to that. And so we change the attitude from being a victim into being a lion. And you've probably heard that the Buddha was known to be a lion. Okay, confidence, supreme confidence. I can handle this thing. Okay. Now we have some skills built up so that we can actually uh, get in a game and have some skin in the game because we know how to do that. Most people, when they put skin in the game, they only get their hands burned. 
because they don't give what they want. They put skin in the game to get what they want. They don't get it. And so whether you put skin in the game or not is not the real issue. The, the real issue is are you going to be successful at what other games you put your skin in? And that is an attitude. It's not, uh, um, it's not a matter of whether you actually win or lose. That that's actually based upon competition that what we're doing here is we're developing friendship instead. And first, the friendship is inside. We stop with the critical thinking and start with the nurturing thinking. We become nurturing to ourselves, and eventually, when we're getting good at this and we have the confidence built up, we can be nurturing to other people. Within the Buddha's context, this nurturing of other people is called metta. Friendliness, compassion, uh, mudita, and mudita means that the joy that we have now built up is to be shared with others. What joy? The joy we built up and manufactured by changing the attitude and changing the thoughts from unwholesome to wholesome thoughts. Now we only have really wholesome thoughts, thoughts of gladness, thoughts of happiness, thoughts of friendship thoughts of mutual uh, care and love. And so now we can go back into the world with a different kind of game to play, but we're still going to put skin in it. In other words, we have an obligation now to the Dhamma to actually be happy in a world of unhappy people. Why? Because we're going to help them to be happy. We're going to set them on fire. We're going to give them the same kind of juice that uh, we got from our teacher. And so the juice that I'm giving you is the same juice that I got from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. That fire, that spark, that I can do this. You can see one person that has been successful at becoming happy. You can recognize I can do that too. Let me start practicing correctly, changing my mind from unwholesome to wholesome thoughts over and over again, and pretty soon I'll have just one wholesome thought after another, after another, after another. But that took some work because the old habits were unwholesome thoughts, thoughts of work to do, thoughts of jobs to be done, thoughts of competition, thoughts of criticism, thoughts of judgments, thoughts that pull us out of the paradise. So now we're going to have only the kind of thoughts that are wholesome, that are nurturing, that actually allow us to see that we do live in a paradise. We're already in a paradise. We've just been destroying it by judgments. So this is how we have skin in the game. But now we have skin in the game of paradise rather than in the skin of the game of critical thinking. Does that help your idea about the skin in the game? And also about how to practice. This is how you practice is, is that you, you watch what you're thinking. You wake up. If you cannot wake up, you cannot do any of the other skills. So that's why sati is the most important. To remember to look at what the mind is doing. To remember to say, hey, am I being wholesome right now or what? And so you can begin to change those thoughts. And it takes an active skin-in-the-game approach 
to physically remove those unwholesome thoughts. But guess what? They're very easy to do. In the sense that when you have the thought, aha, that's an unwholesome thought. Already, this is a new thought. The Buddha had the statement, aha, I see you, Mara. Well, that aha, I see you, Mara, is a different thought than Mara itself. So we can think of it like this, that when we are thinking unwholesome thoughts, we are attached to them, we grab hold of them, we struggle with them, we know those thoughts are wrong, and they're really hard to let go of. But in the practice of the Buddha, it's more like this, that as soon as we recognize what we're doing, we draw back and say, aha, I see you. That means that we're actually separating from those thoughts. Before we thought we were those thoughts. I am my thoughts is the normal way that we're doing. And now we're waking up and saying, wait a minute, I am not that thought. That is a dukkha thought. That is an unwholesome thought. That is not who I am. That's not what I want to be. I want to be something that's wholesome. And so we take our hand away and we say, aha, I see you. Now this is the new thought moment, is the one that's looking. Ah, what's going on here? What's happening? And so we begin to uh, evaluate, and that evaluation then brings us to that wholesome state. Wholesome in the sense of everything's okay, no problems. All of the problems and the worries were just unwholesome thoughts. And so this is how one begins to practice Anapanasati. And I would recommend, rather than many people in meditation try to do it for an hour a day, but the beginners, their attention span is not strong. That mostly they find the attention span for most people is about 20 minutes. That means that you don't need to sit in meditation longer than 20 minutes. But we also recognize that this is something that we're practicing to start doing often throughout the day. Therefore, several sittings like maybe four or six times a day for 10 or 15 minutes. 10 minutes for six times a day is very, very wholesome. Can you imagine six times a day you get your mind completely cleaned out of all of the garbage, all the unwholesome thoughts, and get yourself into a state of comfort and ease, and you do that six times a day for only 10 minutes. To set that unwholesome job down, I don't want to write that email right now. Let me sit here for 10 minutes and get myself into a really, really nice state. And then I can go and do that email. Sure. So, and also, the so I think also one thing for Spencer as well is like the focusing on the breath as a vehicle for that, if you would like to elaborate on that. Well, we use the breath as, as the first object. And that as we continue to practice Anapanasati, we always maintain that breath. In fact, the whole idea of Anapanasati means mindfulness or sati with each breath. Each breath means on this in-breath, I'm actually practicing sati to remember that this breath is going to be a long in-breath. And then the next out-breath is going to be, because of sati, I'm going to remember that this is going to be a long out-breath. With that sati on the in-breath and sati on the out-breath, with these long breaths, that means that twice every breath, we're actually practicing sati. And this is the goal. 
is to be able to remember every breath. But we practice it uh, to get started to just how many breaths can we keep mindful of? Long, deep in breath, long, deep in breath, long, deep out breath over and over again. But that does not stop the mind. And in fact, we don't even at this stage even want to stop the mind. What we want to do instead is to synchronize the breathing with the mind so that now that we're breathing wholesomely, we're also going to start having wholesome thoughts. Like, wow, this is a good breath. Wow, this is going to keep me alive for a little while. If I don't take this breath, I'm going to die. This is going to be a really, oh, wow, that's a good breath. I like that one. Okay, so we begin to enjoy just sitting here being alive. And we start thinking about being alive, start thinking about being a breathing being, just sitting here with nothing to do and no place to go, and we're enjoying the breath. The breath is something to be enjoyed. And so we, uh, and not only that, but it's an anchor for right here, right now, that in order to watch the breath, we are actually no longer in the past and no longer in the future. We're just right here in this present moment. Well, guess what? Almost all of your dangers are in the past. Almost all the problems are in the future. Right here, right now, there's no worries. Right here, right now, there's no dangers. Everything is okay. And so we start to having these kind of thoughts about long, deep in-breath, and everything is okay, and everything is fine. And when we practice this, now we're working with the body and the mind, and as we continue to do this, the feelings start to come along with it. The way that I talk about this is, is that you spent your whole life into talking yourself into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk ourselves into feeling good. And so we do. By watching the breath and by talking to ourselves, we actually not just uh, with the long, deep breathing do we relax the body, but we relax in general. The whole body relaxes, and so does the feelings, so that we begin to develop the feelings that are associated with comfort, safety, security. And so we actually can have thoughts like that, like, right now I feel satisfied. Right now I feel safe. Everything is okay right now. I feel secure. I feel satisfied. But in fact, looking at it from the sense of this is okay. This is satisfying. This is enough. In Thai language, we say po lao. Enough already. Po means enough. Everything is good enough. We're not trying for perfection. We're not judging or being critical of it. We're accepting it in a nurturing way. Everything right now is okay. Everything is fine. That means that it's satisfying or satisfactory. This concept of safety, security, comfort, contentment, and satisfaction, this is the Pali word for sukha. And guess what? Sukha is actually the direct opposite of dukkha in Pali. And in the Thai language, they have Duke and Suk, and they are definitely opposites in Thai language. And I have also a student who has uh, um, roots in Gujarati, 
uh, in Gujarat, and he knows the Gujarati language, and he says, guess what? In Gujarat, there is Duki and Suki, and they are opposites, unwholesome and wholesome. Or um, And so we're getting ourselves into a state of Sukha, and this is exactly the word that the Buddha is using for this state of Anapanasati, is we get ourselves into a state of comfort and ease. Safety, contentment, satisfaction, almost to the point, or actually we can say satiated. Do you know the word satiated? Like I've had it up to here with joy. I am really full of it. <laughs> That's what we mean by satiation. Okay. And as we continue to practice this, we begin also to develop the attitude of can do. I can do this. I can clean out my mind. And eventually the student over a course of weeks of practice will come to the point that it doesn't matter how polluted or junked up or obsessed my mind can get, I can clean it out and come back to a state of satisfaction and joy and peace. That I am no longer in that prison of uh, unwholesome thoughts. That I know now I can escape from that anytime. I found my door. That prison now has an escape hole. And I know that anytime I get myself into prison, I can get myself back out of it. Now that's confidence. That's real confidence to know that you can get yourself out of any jam you get yourself into. And so this is the way that we practice. And, and we have talked about the Eightfold Noble Path in the sense of right view, right effort, right sati, and to now right attitude. And when we have the right attitude, along with these other things, we develop what is called unification or organization of mind, which means that now the mind is put together correctly so that it functions right, and the mind is fit for work. This is the Pali word for samati. The word samati actually means that things are put together in an organized way, and you've got all the components necessary to put things together, which means that this is not concentration. We're not trying to concentrate the mind. We're trying to properly organize it. And yet in Western meditation, they've gotten this idea about concentration. We don't need concentration. We need joy. You don't have to be concentrated to get joy. In fact, most of the people, when they get really super concentrated, there's no joy there. And joy is definitely a component that we want to develop. Joy and satisfaction, uh, that winner's attitude. So actually what we can say is we're adding one new word, and that new word is success. Success. I'm successful now. Now, how can you be successful if you don't have some skin in the game? This is real success because you've really got skin in the game and you're successful at it and you know it and you're building up this confidence. So this is the practice of Anapanasati and there's a lot of things to look at besides just the breathing, but we start with the breath. So we could do things uh, together like this. As I breathe in, I breathe in joy. And as I breathe out, I relax, I relax, there's nothing to do. And as I breathe in, I breathe in happiness. And as I breathe out, I breathe out all the worries of the world. 
And so we can put the, the right kind of wholesome thoughts with the breathing. And we actually then begin to experience or feel that which we're talking about. And so we develop the Eightfold Noble Path this way, using Anapanasati as the practice method. Now, this is not the whole of it, but this is enough to get people started. If you want to have joy in your life, go get some joy. That's good. Sounds good. Damarata, uh, thank you so much. I actually have to get going because it is 11.30 in my time, and I actually have to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> Did you get any? Did you get your questions answered? Absolutely. Yeah, that this was super helpful. All right. Well, I would like to see you again. Maybe you can start to practice, and we can go a little bit deeper into this. Yeah, I'm. I'm hoping this sounds cool. I'm gonna. I'm gonna try this out. Uh, see how it goes. But definitely, yeah. Cool. May you be happy. Excellent. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, I do have to get going, but thank you so much, and uh, have a wonderful day. You too. You too Actually, have, a, have yeah. an absolute marvelous right now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's the right approach. All right. All right well, awesome. I'll, yeah. I'll stay on, and um, Spencer, speak soon. All right. Sounds good. Well, right. bye. Cheers. Bye. Howdy. That was great. Thank you for that. So, yeah, um, the fact that he's, he was very skeptical about it from the beginning. But that's, that's true because people look at it from an ordinary point of view of seeing these rules that we don't like. And we sure. think that freedom is to go to do the sin. Where the real freedom sure. is that I don't need the rules and I don't need to sin. I'm good to go already. <laughs> sure, sure. Do you think he was uh, convinced by the end, your impression? Oh, yeah. Well, you can look at his face and joy and smiles and nodding and all of yeah. that. Kind of <laughs> yeah. yeah, it'll be interesting when I, I'll catch up with him probably tomorrow. It'll be interesting to hear what he has to say. But he did seem to, I think it wasn't at all what he thought, you know. <laughs> you know. I think the sure. noble dhamma is never what people think because we always think about it in, in ordinary terms rather than yep. in high-quality noble terms. Yes, it's hard to communicate this to people, you know. And I can say, like, for example, with another friend of mine I was recently discussing, um, you know, he, he was talking about, you know, having a, problem issues with his mother, right? And I said, you know, a nice goal to have, you know, I've had issues with my father, you know, so I can understand where he's coming from. But a wonderful goal to have is to be in a state where nothing she says impacts you at all. You know, not that you don't have to be around her, but that nothing she says can impact your happiness. I said that to him and he would debate me, you know, no, I'd rather just not be around her. And I said, but if you had that confidence in that real, you know, love and joy, you know, in yourself, her saying something mean to you would be like calling you a tree or a chimpanzee or, a, you know, something else, you know, that you just aren't. And that wouldn't upset you. You know, if someone calls you a tree, it's like, I'm not a tree, <laughs> you know. Well, um, you're actually mentioning something quite important. You're giving him... Hmm. 
You're giving him two jobs to do. And that's too much for most people. Two jobs, okay? It's like not only do you have to change the tire on the car, but you have to do it without a jack. Mm. Okay. What what does that mean? That means that he needs to get away from his mom. He needs to get that flat tire off of the ground so that he can change it. We got to get get out of it. We got to get above it. Right. This is what we mean by seclusion. This is why people mm. go off and practice Anapanasati, uh, not at the dinner table in front of a crowd of people. They practice it alone. Okay. Sure. So when you're talking about it to a uh, to a beginner, and say, "Oh, well, you could have your mind straightened out, and then you can handle your mom." Yeah, well, now you've given him two jobs. He's got to straighten him, his own mind out and that he's got to handle his mom. Sure. That he's right in the first place to get away from her. Right, <laughs> right, totally. And, and I'm not saying he's wrong to do that. Uh-huh. All I'm saying is this is something to aspire to, which is what I said. Like, you know, okay. like I said, this is not uh, for the normal people. This is to aspire to this, you know, to someday right. it can be this way, you know. Well, I wouldn't inspire, I wouldn't aspire or um, inspire, but rather let's get the right procedure going. Okay. Now, what we're actually talking about is to get away from the mom needs to be done actually in a two-step sequence. So actually, we're talking about three jobs, not two. Okay. So now you not only do you have to change the tire without a jack, you don't have a lug wrench either. And now it's going to be really hard. Now it's just uh, an ideal or or a possibility. Okay, so let's look at how we can actually add these tools so that we can do the job. The first thing is is to get away from mom secluded in reality. Just like any meditator will get away from the world by going to do a retreat. Or like the Buddha says, of uh, secluded, uh, you go to, to the forest to the foot of a tree, to an empty hut, to a pile of straw. You know, this is the the idea is to get away from other people altogether. And so that's the first thing that we do. The second thing with this guy, with your, uh, the point is, is that now that he's gotten away from his mom, he still hasn't gotten away from her because he's carried her around in his head. Right, right. Right. The past, the past 30 years of memories of mom are still there. And that, in fact, when his real mom is doing his real mom's thing, he's not reacting or responding to the real mom. He's responding to the mom in his head. And so the the real mom reminds him of the mind of the mom in his head. And so he's not responding to the real mom. He's responding to the mom in his head. So he has to do two things first before he can deal with the real mom is one, he needs to get secluded from the real mom. And then he has to get secluded from the mom in his head. Sure. Okay. That's the hindrances or the unwholesome thoughts. Right. Right. Once he gets the mind into a wholesome state and can maintain it with that confidence that we're talking about. Now he'll have the confidence that he can go back and deal with the real mom in this moment 
without having to bring up the old mom in his head and deal with her too. Sure. Because he's got joy now, because he's got a freedom now, he can deal with the real mom in the reality of the moment. And it's actually quite possible for the old mom to come back in his head after 10 minutes or so. That would be a good yep. time for him to say, oh, mom, I got something to do. I'll talk to you later and then get away from her again and go practice again to get the old mom out of his head. Right, right. Okay. And, and do it in stages, just a little bit at a time, just a little, as long as he can handle her wholesomely, do so. As soon as he gets himself into an unwholesome mind state, get her out, go away. Sure. Moms are especially uh, difficult that way because moms, they know where all your buttons are. They've watched you your whole life and they know exactly how to be critical of you to push your buttons. And so sure. it, it, uh, you, you can go so far as to say that mom is the last button to go. Sure. At, at one time, um, this was about 20 years ago. Times have passed, but at 20 years ago, I would say um, that you can't push my buttons. Only my mom knows where my buttons are, and she can still push them, but you can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a great saying, you know, Ram Das said, you know, if you think you're enlightened, go spend time with your family. <laughs> exactly. Yep, yep. Very true. Yes, that's where um, the old buttons are. So he's saying exactly the same thing. So I would recommend instead of giving him the ideal, oh, you should be able to handle your mom correctly. That's just pointing out the failure that he can't do it. And so he's absolutely right. No, he needs to get away from her. Sure. He's right. He needs to get away from her. But he's wrong in the sense that he thinks that it's his physical mom nowadays that he needs to get away from. When in fact, the real mom that he needs to get away from is all the memories of mom and all the past unhappiness right. and everything that's happened before so that he can meet this woman newly in this present moment without even using the word mom. Sure, sure. Totally. Even using the word mom is an old set of baggage. <laughs> sure, sure. So another comment, different subject. So, I, so I've had a hard time, you know, maintaining a daily practice. Um, and it's been a big challenge for me, you know. And every day I do maintain... The, the practice throughout the day, you know, like I, I will grab on to an unwholesome thought, you know, even today, you know, many, many occurrences throughout the day, you know, but in terms of doing my formal sitting practice, I have a hard time getting myself to sit and do it, which is also unwholesome, right? I need to grab onto that too, you know, but but it is a challenge for me, and I don't know why. So I just thought I'd bring it up. I so. do. It's because you yeah. don't enjoy it. You're not practicing correctly. If you enjoyed your sitting practice, then you would want to do it more. I have the enjoyed it. Yeah. 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 Sorry, Yon. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's, in fact, what happens with Western meditation is, is that people get, they practice meditation for some future benefit for some future result. Mm. 
right? That's how we all get started. Someplace in there, you're going to have to make the transition from you're no longer practicing meditation to get results. Rather, you're practicing meditation, number one, for skill development, and number two is because you like it. Sure. A really interesting point about that is a young child, let's say a, a, a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid who is taking piano lessons, if that child actually enjoys playing the piano, he will continue playing, he will continue to get lessons, he will continue on, and he will get fairly good at music. If the child does not like playing the piano, then it doesn't matter how many lessons he has, he's not going to practice much and he's not going to get much benefit out of it. So sure. uh, we have to work on the joy of, uh, and so actually even calling it meditation is putting that uh, extra pressure on is something that we ought to do and is something you're going to get benefit from. So a new kind of thinking about it, a new mentality instead of I should meditate, but I don't want to right now. That's an unwholesome thought. Right. A wholesome right. thought right then would be to take a deep breath and say, wow, I don't have to do anything right now. I don't even have to go meditate right now. I can just sit here and do nothing. And that's meditation. <laughs> Going and sitting down and doing something because it's supposed to be good for you. That's not real meditation. That's, I don't know what. <laughs> it's uh, fact, eating broccoli, Brussels sprouts, you know. Mm -hmm. We could go so far as to say, okay, all Western Buddhists and Christians and everybody else can have that word meditation. Sure. Because that's not what we're doing. That's what they do, and that's what you don't like. That's why your formal practice is not doing well, is because you think of it as meditation. Sure. The better way of thinking about it uh, in, in the Pali <coughs> would be Anapanasati, but in English we can just say, oh, I'll take a deep breath. That's all I have to do. That's it. Just to take a deep breath and relax. Sure. That's yeah. Anapanapati. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Yeah, because I, I do kind of hype it up as a work effort, you know, as something I have to do. And what's funny is I do enjoy it when I do it, you know, but I it often takes But a you're few telling yourself you it. should do it from that parent ego state that we've exactly, been talking about. Exactly, exactly. And when the parent ego <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And when the super ego comes up, it's like screw you, you know, I don't want this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Congratulations, Robert. That's good that you can see that in yourself. Because I can describe it yeah. to a hundred people and only two or three of them get the point. Oh, yeah, no, I totally get it. I mean, like, even, like, getting out of bed in the morning sometimes, it's like, screw you, you know, I don't want to do this, you know. And, <laughs> and so yeah, we have that little battle in the bed. Instead of saying, oh, well, take another five minutes. Enjoy yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I am getting better at doing that. Like, I did that yesterday you know i just felt the need to take a nap in the middle of the day and it was like well i can get up half an hour before my work call and i just didn't want to and there was no need for me to do that and so i just stayed there for another you know 20 25 minutes you know um 
and it was great. It was really nice, you know, and it's, yeah, it's hard because, you know, I've, I've always been kind of a type A sort of a person, you know, perfectionist, you know, want to do everything right. And letting go of that. We'll have hard. to talk about a nod to later, but I yeah. can introduce that in the sense that Robert is going to be important for you to begin to understand you were not your personality. Your personality was developed over time as a child, but you are not that personality because you can change. Your personality is not set. It does not define who you are. It's just an old set of bad habits. Mm. Those bad habits are associated with the uh, our memories, the way that we uh, look at things and perceive things. Uh, the way that we see ourselves, as well as our feelings and our body. But in the reality is that there, there's no internal hardcore soul in there anywhere. That the whole idea of self comes up in the operation of those things. Mm. But that you are not your personality. Sure. Which, of course, leads to the question, what am I? The answer to that is, that's an irrelevant, stupid question. <laughs> well, it's funny, and, you know, my, yeah. and it will give you a new answer every time you try to answer that question. That's why it's irrelevant, is because you're a moving target. Instead of trying to figure out who you are, it's a whole bunch in, more important to figure out who you are not. Sure. And or you are not you your are personality. Right yeah. You are not your body. You are not your feelings. You are not your memory systems. You are not uh, your way of looking at things. You are not any of those things. Well, it's funny. My Vipassana teacher at Wat Chom Tong in northern Thailand said, you know, you, there is no Robert. There is just Nama Rupa. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and this, this particular is process. perception. That's the yes. word. Uh, the other poly word for it is uh, uh, body sanya. mind. Yeah. Body mind. Mm-hmm. That's and, all and there this is. This particular process is just called Robert. That that was what he said. That this particular process of it is is just called Robert. But there's no Robert. You know, no Robert there. Yeah, which is crazy to to, to really no, it's liberating. That. Uh, no, 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 I mean crazy in a good way. I'm not saying crazy okay. to attack it. I mean, like, it's 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 mind-blowing, you know, to think about it, you know, that there is no... Well, that means no... you're free from that self. That self that you yeah. thought Robert was, you if, you if it does exist, then you are somehow married to it, bound to it, tied to it, handcuffed to it, chained to it. It's a prison. Right. Ah! That's it. That's the prison. The prison is me. <laughs> and when there is no me, there's no prison. Right. And, <laughs> you know, that should have been in the book, the prison of you, the prison of the self. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, it should have been in there. Yeah, it's a, yeah. I mean, to really internalize that is really powerful. I think it'll take me some time to really make, you know, internalize that. But, because um, it's a very powerful idea because, you know, we we go through our day, you know, or at least I do, maybe not you, <laughs> but at least I do, you know, 
um, and many other people thinking, oh, you know, uh, you know, wh what will this do for me? What will that do for me? You know, like if I read this book, how will it improve me? If I, you know, go on this trip, you know, how will, how will people perceive this? You know, how will I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's like just thinking and it, it's like a hobbyist kind of thing. How will this, it's kind of like decorating a house, you know, like if I get mm -hmm. this for my house versus that. And, you know, it's funny. One thing that has been said about millennials as opposed to baby boomers is that baby boomers like to accumulate things. Millennials like to accumulate experiences, you know, and um, it's a generational difference, you know, and some critique that and say the reason millennials don't accumulate things is they don't have money for it. But that's the reason yeah. that the, uh, the boomers do is not because you see the millennials do not see the boomers at the age of the millennials. They see the boomers, uh, the millennials see the boomers at the boomers age they are now. And right. so the millennials see the boomers up there. They're not seeing the boomers when the boomers were the same age as the millennials because at that age, the boomers were all into the experience also. Sure, sure. And, you know, and, and I think, when the millennials yeah. get up to the age of 60 or well like that, then they'll get all material and <laughs> it's, sure, it's sure, a process sure. of life. But it's, uh, and it is seen in generations. But each of the generations say that our generation is different than those other generations. No, it's the same generation. Every time they go through the same sequence, we're born as little babies. We go through school. We start looking for experiences. And then we stop that and start looking for other things. And, and it's just a, a normal sequence of life. Sure. And, and I anyway, think anyway, you were back yeah. to millennials are into experience. Yes, sure. Sure. Who yeah, do you think stage, like, like, yeah. like, here's some way of doing it. Let's talk about some experiences. Okay. Let's talk about the experience of high speed motor motorcycles. Sure. Didn't the boomers yeah. have high-speed motorcycles? How about skydiving? Yeah, yeah. Well, the boomers did, high, did skydiving. How, sure. how about uh, crossing the ocean in a uh, one-person vessel, a, a very small sailing boat? Because there's a, a girl who's just recently done that whole round the world, solo on a oh, boat. That's pretty cool. Uh, Guess yeah, what? Yeah. That was done 50 years ago. <laughs> and then it was done 50 years before that. <laughs> sure, sure. I, I guess so the reason I brought this up was that, you know, in like the age of social media, when people take pictures and post, you know, and this and that, you know, there's this whole thing about, you know, collecting experiences to kind of show off, you know, mm -hmm. like, oh, like, you know, and even in meditation world, you know, it's like this, oh, I've done 10 silent retreats, you know, I've done, you know, 20, you know, rituals on the mountain in Nepal, you know, and I've done this, I've done that, you know, and, and there's this kind of sense of wanting to show off and like cultivate <laughs> some kind of a, you know, persona for yourself, you know, and, um, and sometimes I go into that mode, you know, myself, you know, and think about, oh, I'll write a book someday, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and that's unwholesome. Yes. 
it's an awesome, you know, it's it's like that. Gets us worried and upset and gives us work to do and jobs that need to be done and uh, grasping and clinging and dissatisfaction. And then the ignorance kicks in and we say, oh, well, I'll feel better if I actually do write that book. Or I will feel better if I do get enough meditation retreats that I can outpace that guy. He's already got 10 and bragging. How, how many do I only need to do two more and I'll have 11 and then I'll be better than him. So now I got to go to do retreats. And now we're doing retreats, not for the benefit of the retreat. We're doing it to um, crack up numbers. Right. We're in competition with everything. Right. We're taught to be in competition in school. Everything about school winds up being a competition. That's why they grade the kids. There's a few schools right. that don't grade. But the games that the kids play are competitive games. So sure. we're taught to be competitive. That's critical thinking. It's yep. competition. The Buddha teaches, let's be friends. We don't have to be competitors. No need to be enemies. We can be happy together. If we're competitors, we've both got work to do. If we're friends, we can both sit down and got nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> but but what if you play a game? What if you play chess, you know, mahjong, you know, whatever. Do they play lots of mahjong in Thailand? I have actually played mahjong. Hmm. I know mahjong. I played it with Nathan Goldman and Bernanke, uh, and Ben Bernanke. Really? You know which Ben Bernanke I'm talking about? Is it the Fed chair? The former? Wow. I knew him personally. Played Marjan with him as well as I taught him how to play chess. Wow. Wow. What was the circumstance? Dillon, South Carolina. That was the circumstance. <laughs> Did you guys grow up together or? Yeah. We were in high school together. Well, actually, Ben was younger than Nathan and I. Nathan's actually a lawyer in, in Texas. He's retired now. Huh. So what what did you think of Ben? Like in I actually don't remember him very much. <laughs> yeah. Don't remember him. Uh but you were talking about chess and Marjan and that's why Ben's name came to mind because I played that's both funny. of them with him. <laughs> so when he became the chair of the Fed, were you like, wow, you know, like, what did you, how, what was your response to that? Yeah. It was actually my <laughs> sister who pointed it out. Oh, well. It didn't even, didn't even dawn on me until That's she funny. says, hey, you used to play with him. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's so funny. So, yeah. So interesting stuff. So the, um. So the non-self, you know, or the self not existing, um, how does one integrate that into their life? You know, how should one respond to that kind of a realization or, 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 or you know, insight? Happily. It's freedom. Freedom from the self. That I don't have to worry. Because I don't have anything to protect. Sure. You see, that's the problem of a self, is it's just something new or something else that needs protection. It's, it's uh, ephemeral. It's uh, fragile. 
it gets damaged really easily. Anybody, I mean, all all that has to happen, we don't even have to uh, debump it, bounce it, hit it. All we have to do is just say something bad about it, and it and it goes into a, a woeful state. Hmm. Okay, and so uh, the the self is very fragile, and people have to spend a whole lot of time taking care of it. So if sure. the girl identifies I am the body and I'm my body, me is not beautiful. I'm not beautiful. I've got to go work. To go buy some Revlon, some Maxi, uh, Max Factor, uh, some Gucci. And when I get all of that done, then uh, all of this paint that I've got on my face makes me believe that at least now I'm beautiful. Actually, it's not the girl who's beautiful. It's the paint job. <laughs> but you can see that if she, if the girl looked in the mirror and said, hmm, okay, then she's got no work to do. But when she looks in the work in the mirror and says, I'm not beautiful. There's the cell. Sure. And look how much work she's got to do to, to pretty up that cell. Sure. And if there's no self, then there's no reason to go do anything. So selfishness sure. actually is a huge amount of work. Yeah, yeah, totally. Hmm. And when there's no self to protect, everything is easy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Interesting stuff. Uh, so that in the so my so several big takeaways from today. That's one of them. Another is the not thinking about meditation. You know, just thinking about relaxing, taking some breaths, you know, mm-hmm. enjoying the moment. That's a big one for me. Um, and uh, yeah, those are two really big takeaways. And I also enjoyed our conversation regarding the prison of life, you know, with Spencer. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was great. So, anyhow. Well, Robert, we'll see you later then. Yeah, I might call tomorrow. I hope to call tomorrow. We'll, we'll see, but I'll, I'll try it. Actually, I okay. won't try because I don't exist, so uh, you won't hear anything from me. <laughs> yes. This, Tomorrow this, this will pro- be another day. Yep, this process might contact you in some way. I don't know. We'll see what it decides <laughs> to do. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. It's okay to use conventional language. Great. Yeah, that was interesting. I think someone, I remember reading somewhere, hearing somewhere, someone asked Buddha Dasa, the, do you have a self? And he said, you know, conventionally, of course, unconventionally, no. Well, in a Dhamma sense, yeah. no. In, yes. uh, in conventional language, in ordinary people's language, then uh, the language is built on it. The language yep. is like uh, um, uh, he, she, it, they, them, us, we, they, all the personal program pronouns are in the language because the, the language ears who built the language in the first place could see a self. Right. No, uh, but in fact, people who are in Anatta don't invent languages. <laughs> sure. So, the, so a language is going to be conventional. Um, uh, we can speak in Dhamma language, but uh, we need conventional words to do that. We'll talk about Dhamma language and conventional language at another time, though. 
But for right oh, now, sure. we just understand that, yeah, that's the language we speak. It's got pronouns in it. <laughs> now, now, the Thai language, the pronouns are often taken out. In fact, the Thai people and the Thai language uh, is asking the same questions about their language 500, 1,000 years ago that you're asking today. And so oh, the well. result of that is much of the pronouns have been taken out of the Thai language and it's all done inferentially. Hmm. Like Pai Tiao. The word Pai Tiao is a very, 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 very common phrase. Each Thai person will probably use that phrase twice or three times a day at, mo uh, at least. Pai Tiao means to go out. But it doesn't say I'm going out. It depends upon the context. So if someone's raising their, or waving their hand as they're going out the door and says Pai Tiao, the English language would say, see you later, I'm, I'm going out. Right. But in Thai, we just say Pai Tiao. If I'm sitting on the porch and I see somebody leaving the house, I can say Pai Tiao in the same language, uh, in the same phrase. I don't even have to put a lifting particle on it to sound like that it's a, a question. I can just say Pai Tiao and everybody understands it's they are going out and I see it. Oh, well. Okay. And so a lot of it can be done in, in context in Thai and the Thais understand that. If you take the pronouns out of the English language, it sometimes gets confusing as to who's doing what. Sure. And so we use the pronouns for specificity, not for um, an acknowledgement of a self. Sure. We're just doing specific specificity. So uh, you can practice that. Hmm. Or practice that. <laughs> okay, cool. Very cool. Interesting. Well, my friend, Pai Tiao, great to see you. And uh, speak soon. See you again. Yep, cheers. Yeah, I, I enjoy your conversations. It's very Thank, good. Thank you. I really enjoy them too. It, it always brings happiness, joy to my day. So, or my late evening, I should say. <laughs> but I carry through to the next day. So, video. Well, thank you so much. Speak soon. Okay, Robert. We'll see Cup, you. Yep. Bye.